Blockworks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in October. Over 800 institutions are attending, including FTX, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Coinbase, and the London Stock Exchange. To get a discount, use code GUIDANCE250, all caps, GUIDANCE250. I am extremely excited for this interview. I am joined by Bethany McLean, financial journalist and author. I've read all of her books. Bethany, great to have you here. Thank you for having me, and thank you for reading my books. <laughs> of course, everyone should. Uh, you're best known for breaking the Enron story, the biggest corporate uh, fraud case in history remains uh, 20 years after the fact. Uh, your book, uh, uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, is fantastic. Not just, I, I don't think it's just like the best business book. I think it's one of the best books uh, of all time. I want to ask you, so Enron, a, a huge corporate uh, scandal, a company that many thought you know earnings were going up and to the right. It ended up to go bankrupt extremely quickly because of a lot of, of hidden debt. Um, if I, if I were to ask you, Bethany, what do you think is the most poignant reason that allowed Enron to happen? And I'm not talking about a human element, whether it's the hubris or credulity. I'm talking about a, a systemic flaw. Uh, what what allowed Enron to happen? How did things get so bad uh, that, that you know you had this massive fraud? I think it's a great question because I think it continues today. And that's the monomaniacal focus on the part of the investment community on quarterly earnings per share. So Enron was a company that had mastered how to play that game. Um, each quarter, they would meet or beat analyst earnings expectations like clockwork. And I remember talking to one person who owned the stock when I was doing the research for this first skeptical story I wrote for Fortune. And the person said, well, you can't criticize anything about Enron. They always meet or beat earnings expectations. And I said, well, how, how, did, how did they do that? What about their business enables them to do that? And the portfolio manager kind of looked at me and shrugged and said, well, I, I don't know. All I know is that they do. And so it, it was it was this, we don't need to look at the balance sheet. We don't really need to understand the business model. We don't need to understand the cash flows. We don't need to dig into these um, related party transactions that are disclosed in the footnotes because they meet or beat quarterly earnings expectations. And the tragedy about that, why it is poignant is that that there were a lot of really great things about Enron. They were it was a visionary company in some ways, but because they played this game so well, people didn't ask questions until it was too late. Where if pe whereas if people had asked questions all along, then it never would have attained the scale that it did, and it wouldn't have wiped people out to the extent that it that it that it did. And Enron might have gone on to accomplish some very legitimate things. So it was, it was, it was, it was an enabler in a really dangerous way. Mm. And Enron ended in cataclysmic failure, but there are other companies that employed, let me say, I should say similar techniques that were visionary companies that they did not end in cataclysmic failure. And they were the, the bright stars. Um, I, I think of General Electric and, and Jack Welch, who was the CEO who was lionized at the time. And uh, shortly after he left, it, it, he, he, he employed many similar tactics of uh, earnings per share management. And he, you know, yes, GE had some problems later down the line, but he, when at the time he left, he was, I mean, the most respe well-respected CEO in the entire world. Do you think there's a parallel universe in which you wrote this skeptical article about Enron, which, by the way, looking back at the time, it, it's funny how 
um, measured the, the title of your article was is it's not Enron is a fraud. It's, it was uh, is Enron overvalued? Question marks. Just just asking questions. Um, but do you think there's a parallel world in which uh, you know GE <laughs> ended in a giant corporate fraud and Enron is still with us today? So uh, funny, I, you say that about the, the story. I've often joked that that story should have won um, awards for the meekest title in business journalism history because is Enron overpriced? Well, given that it was six months six months later, it was bankrupt. Well, yes. So I, I can answer that question in two different ways. And the first way I would say, absolutely, it can be a recipe for success for a lot of companies. And the question is the extent to which they employ this, this tool. So for a company that has a fundamentally solid business, and they put a little bit of time into massaging earnings to make sure that they meet analyst earnings expectations and that they communicate well with the investor community, well, fine, right? You, you, I, I still can't help being enough of a Puritan that I'd rather they didn't have to do that at all, but that's the world in which we live. And okay. The problem is like with anything, it's in the extremes that you get into trouble. So if you, if that becomes your entire business, which it became most of Enron's business, which was sort of inventing earnings for the purpose of satisfying the, the investment community, that's when you have a problem. So it's all in the degree to which, to which you do it. Except, <laughs> I say that. And then as you were talking about GE, I was thinking, but GE did end in, in, in ignominy. Um, many years later, it took a really long time for it to fall apart. But I, I remember a great piece in the Wall Street Journal. I'm just going to reveal how old I am. Not that the Enron story doesn't. But I think it was back in the 1990s talking about how GE had pioneered this culture of meetings, meeting earning, earnings expectations. And it may have taken 20 years for it to fall apart, but it did. And it was that culture in the end that brought that helped bring GE down and resulted in the not collapse, not bankruptcy, but really the falling apart of what was one of America's greatest companies. And you can argue that if GE had had thought about its business differently, it wouldn't have ended up where where it did. And the technique of conjuring up earnings the day before you release your quarterly results to investors, uh, that technique, if I, if I recall from your book, uh, it, it involved nothing actually happened. It was just, uh, you know, you had you uh, a variety of uh, natural gas forward contracts that you quoted a little bit different way so that you booked a profit. You it's, it's you know, the, the more I learned about finance, a lot of it is essentially, you know, the reason that banks quote lost so much money during 2020 was they just booked a loss because of they interpreted that they would lose a lot of money. And then they had a great year in 2021 because they realized they did not realize those losses. So they just uh, canceled out those losses. And I, I wonder to what degree, what is the stop on what, what is the impediment on companies uh, conducting fraud on such a blatant scale? If the tools that they use are similar to, Legitimate companies, Exxon Mobil, you know, booked a, a huge loss in 2020 because the price of oil crashed, and they said, okay, what we're going to earn is a lot less, so they booked an impairment charge, and that, that is a you know just as the banks did, and that is, is a legitimate use. But uh, Enron did the exact same thing, except it was a fraud. So I wonder what ha, you know, how do you stop uh, fraudulent uses if it's done via sort of legitimate tactics? 
the thing about accounting that a lot of people on the outside don't recognize and what you're getting at is that accounting is an art, not a science. And there are there's all sorts of slipperiness and how various rules are applied that leave a lot that leave a lot in the in the, the, the proverbial devil in, 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 in the details. And the idea that there is a precise answer, particularly for something, as you mentioned, like a really hard to value long dated contract. Well, there, there isn't. So there's a little bit of could we say that it changed this in the quarter if we need to? in order to get a few extra pennies of earnings, your accountants will often allow you to do that. And that's, it, it actually gets to the heart of the Enron story, which is that a lot of, most of what Enron did was perfectly legal. That's why it was such a difficult, um, it was such a difficult fraud to prosecute because everything they did was using the accounting rules. Not everything they did, but most things they did was using the accounting rules in order to manipulate their reported results. But the accountants and the lawyers signed off on what they were doing. So I've used the term legal fraud to describe it because in the micro, each of Enron's transactions was legal. It completely misrepresented economic reality because it wasn't just this issue of, of, of long-dated contracts. It was also coming up with various transactions that would create reported earnings per share, even if they cost cash flow. Um, but, but much of what they did was, was legal. It was signed off on by the accountants and the lawyers. But you had this because it was transaction after transaction. It was like an entire um, edifice made out of these these faulty transactions, these transactions that misrepresented economic reality, you ended up with this company whose financial statements totally misrepresented economic reality, even if many of the building blocks that went into that were, were, were legal. And there was this great line in Enron's risk management manual, and I'm going to misquote it because I don't have it in front, in front of me, but it was something along the lines of uh, management is judged based on reported earnings, not based on economic reality. Therefore, our accounting strategies are geared toward reported earnings, not toward economic reality. And that summed up the whole Enron's whole attitude. Yeah, a lot of those off party transactions you mentioned were they they were off balance sheets, um, where essentially a company was created from nothing. That really was the CFO, um, uh, Andrew Fastow. And he basically did the company's dirty laundry. uh, And and all of it was reported off balance sheet. First of all, I have to ask you, is it true that when you flew to New York, um, excuse me, when he flew to New York to dispute what you were writing uh, against him, the CFO of Enron, uh, that he, he said something to you after the interview, right? That was really funny. Yeah, he said he said I don't care what you write about the company, just don't make me look bad. And it, and it was and it was a joke, but there is this uh, thing about humor that it often unintentionally and inadvertently reveals the truth. There's often an element of of truth in it, and I've often thought back to that because we all laughed at the time. We were just shocked, and we all laughed. And then I remember thinking later, hmm, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, yeah. In the years after he got out of prison, Andy has made a second career out of going on the road and giving presentations presentations and talks about how he went to jail for exactly the same thing that he had been lionized for a few years earlier. And that example really does get to the heart of your question, what's the line here? Because he's, he's right, that's that's true. Um, or at least it's true in part, and I'm going to come back to the in part. Yes. But, he's, but he, he's, he's right. He was lionized for creating these innovative mechanisms to help create earnings. And then he was punished for 
these innovative mechanisms that that helped that helped create earnings. But it, that it oversimplifies the story because Andy was Andy was indicted for two things. One was that the other was using these partnerships that he'd set up to steal money from the company. The first is the gray area. The second is not a gray area. And if it hadn't been for the second, I don't think the Justice Department would have been able to indict him for the first. In other words, it was because he did something that was clearly illegal that then they expanded the indictment in order to include this more slippery area of manipulating earnings. If he had not use these vehicles that he had set up to steal money from from Enron, then I don't think he would have been indicted for the for, for, for the first part, because I think it was it would have been too difficult a prosecution. That second part of the indictment was what allowed the Justice Department to go after other people at Enron because Andy pled guilty to both. So it was a wrong in the prosecution of other people at, at, at Enron, um, even though I, it goes back to this concept of legal fraud. I've always argued that in the big picture, Enron was absolutely a fraud. It's, it's financial statements completely misrepresent an economic reality. But in the small picture, in the, in the details, in the, in the small snapshots, it, it, it was very difficult to prove, legally speaking. Mm. Well, how do you de- describe fraud after Enron? Uh, what, were there laws passed that made sure this can never happen again? Uh, would you say that the level of fraud now or the past 20 years is lower than the late 1990s and you know uh, Enron, or has it gotten worse? I think the past few years have given us an enormous amount to work with. And one sad thing for me about working on this this book has been that it's been very fertile territory with a lot of a lot of fantastic stories. I wanted to go back to the second part of your last question, which I didn't answer, which is: Are there people out there today who were lionizing that later might might appear not worthy of such lionization? Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, one of the fascinating things about the business world is that very swing factor about how we can be looking at these people like Jack Welch. It may take two decades um, and then suddenly look back on them and say, wait, wait, were were they were they really a hero? So so for sure. a lot changed in the wake of Enron purportedly. Uh, a law called Sarbanes-Oxley was signed that was supposed to, uh, there's a great clip of um, President George Bush signing it in the Rose Garden saying, you know, the world is now safe forever for individual investors because corporations won't be able to lie and steal and get away with get away with these things. Um, the disillusioning thing is to compare the text of George Bush's comments with Barack Obama's, President Barack Obama's comments after after the financial crisis when he signed the Dodd-Frank law into effect. And the text of the two remarks is almost exactly the same. Now the world is safe for individual investors and everything is perfect and corporations are no longer going to lie and every, everything is going to be great. And just like the laws passed in the wake of Enron didn't protect us from the great financial crisis, the laws passed in the wake of the financial crisis haven't protected us from other problems coming, coming down the pike. I think if you talk to most professional short sellers, they think the last couple of years has been an incredibly fertile time for them and that there are enormous number of frauds that are still still to come to light. So as long as human nature remains unchanged, and what I mean by that is that when it comes to when it comes to business gone wrong, when it comes to financial crimes, it, it always requires the complicity of the victims, the willingness of all of us to believe in this thing that in retrospect is clearly going to be seen as too good to be true. 
it's where we began our conversation. If it weren't for the investment communities enabling of Enron, the Enron story never would have happened. But everybody wanted to believe because everybody thought they could get rich off it. And that is human nature in a nutshell. And that's I, I don't see any signs that that's changing. <laughs> and unless that changes, there will always be more cases of business gone wrong. It's just a question of whether they're small or, as in the case of Enron, really, really big. Yes, you profile and diagnose the 2008 great financial crisis uh, in your book with Joe Nocero, All the Devils Are Here, which I also really recommend. And it seems to me that was a systemic failure uh, of regulation in that, of, oh, bankers, obviously, but of regulation in that banks were allowed to hold certain securities on their balance sheets as if it had the same risk as treasuries, if it had the same rating as treasuries, which is AAA. And there were these rating agencies which were essentially selling these ratings when they were they should not have been uh, rated AAA. I, and I feel like when you said, the, uh, I want to ask you about this, you just said the uh, in the wake uh, of the Dodd-Frank and the regulation after the great financial crisis, it's insufficient. Uh, it's my belief that that systemic risk uh, to some degree has been within the banking system has been contained. In other words, the credit default swap is something like, I don't know, one one hundredth the size of what it was before the great financial crisis. And that's a good thing. But uh, when you say that there's still it's still the Wild West, what, what, what I imagine you're referring to is companies going public and lie, uh, uh, you know, soft uh, legal fraud to investors that, you know, yes, yes, the uh, global financial system may not collapse, but, you know, there can be a SPAC that goes public at $10 and then it goes to 30 and an individual investor like me buys it at $30 and then it goes to $1.50. Like that can definitely happen. Is, is that what you're referring to or is there, is there something else? Yeah, let me, let me clarify. If I said that the regulation was insufficient, I apologize because that's not what I meant. I am not a believer in regulations being the cure-all. What I meant is that it, it doesn't, the, it gives us the illusion of safety and it is just the illusion of safety. I absolutely think the banking sector is, has been much safer uh, in the wake of the great financial crisis that has brought with it some other problems, namely the continued rise and explosion of a whole shadow banking system that does what the banking system is not allowed to do. And the irony of that is that if you look back to the great financial crisis, a good part of that was caused by what was known as the shadow banking system. And so in the wake of, of the financial crisis, we clamped down on part of the problem, which was these loans that were moving through the regular regulated banking system. But the shadow banking system has continued to flourish absolutely unchecked. And if you think about what happened in, in the pandemic, obviously COVID was a totally exotic event, but some of the same parts of the system that had failed in the financial crisis failed again in COVID, namely these parts of the system like money market funds that are outside the purview of, supposed to be outside the purview of the banking system, yet whenever there's a problem, they need to be rescued. And so it's these, these parts of the, the shadow banking system. I do not believe that, that there's any amount of regulation that can make the system perfectly safe. And I actually think in some ways, the illusion that it does is dangerous because when you clamp down in one place, you just create openings and loopholes um, in, 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 in another place. When I say that the opportunities for fraud remain, remain, um, remain out there, it's not the same kind of fraud. It, it, history repeats, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat. So what happens the next time around is maybe fraud, but it's usually not the same thing. I mean, the great financial crisis was not Enron and SPACs and cryptocurrency and all the crazy things happening in our markets today are not the great financial crisis. But but the, the, the big problem that, 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 that people can get 
suckered and people often allow themselves to get suckered remains the same. How do you characterize the investment landscape that began within COVID? In other words, in March of 2020, the shadow banking system uh, imploded and asset prices collapsed and even things that are supposed to be risk-free like long duration treasuries, they behaved like they were a risk asset as well. And the Federal Reserve stepped in, central bankers stepped in, the government stepped in, you had a paycheck protection program and essentially you know, the money printer began to get worrying again. And then somewhere in summer 2020, you know, the risk assets reflated, but then somewhere between 20, uh, summer 2020 and let's say the winter of 2021, you had some, some really uh, speculative business models, uh, some pre-profit, no problem, go public. Pre-revenue, no problem, let's go public. Uh, is, is that, did you have, that ever happen during the dot-com bubble where you had you know, companies go, that had no revenue at all, it was purely eyeballs? Um, or maybe, maybe the sizes are different. Like, yes, you had companies go public, but they only raised $20 million. In this case, they raised $20 billion. Right, I think it's the size that's different. I, I, I don't think back in the first dot-com boom, you had companies without revenues going public. You had companies without profits, for sure. Companies were being valued according to eyeballs and according to all sorts of crazy metrics to get around having to value them based on profits because there weren't any profits. So for sure that happened. But this time around, it was, it was, it was much bigger. Um, I think it was much more extreme. And the lending against these assets in private markets has been a little more extreme too, in the sense that private equity funds are much, much bigger now than they were during the first dot-com boom. And you've had private equity deals of unprofitable companies done at these extraordinary multiples funded by debt in the private markets. And you know what? It might all end fine. I mean, maybe all these businesses are going to be great and they're going to be able to pay their loans back, or maybe inflation is going to be tamed in the Federal Reserve is going to start cutting interest rates again and the party is going to continue, but it, but it may not be fine. Right. Yeah. Tell me about private equity. Suffice it to say, defenders of private equity say, yes, 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 the returns have better been better than the S&P 500. And detractors say, no, when you strip away leverage, the increased leverage that private equity firms are able to use, they're, they're not better than the S&P 500. And so what I find fascinating about the asset class is that there can be a debate about how good the returns are. And yet people are continuing to just pour money into that, into it. And part of it has been skepticism about whether the public markets can deliver returns. Part of it has been the result of a low interest rate environment um, where pension funds can't make their returns in fixed income markets. So they're desperate to put money in places that can. And private equity has been a recipient of that, that largesse. And part of it is that private equity funds smooth their returns. So pension funds don't have to go to their overseers and say, look, we lost all this money this year because here's what the S&P 500 declined. They can say, oh, no, no, this private equity fund, it's only down 3% where the market is down 18%. It's back to Andy Fastow and Enron. Yeah. What's legal? What isn't legal? What are we willing to tolerate? What are we not willing to tolerate? And the fact that investors like this, they like being able, not having to confess that they lost 20% of the fund's capital and being able to say, no, 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 my private equity fund only lost only lost 3%. Um, to me, one of the biggest questions about private equity going forward and one of the biggest um, negatives is also one of the biggest negatives about it, which have been um, dividend um, dividend recapitalizations. I think they are just... Um, sorry, what is that? What is that? Sorry. 
So a dividend recapitalization is when a private equity firm has already taken a company public and they go back in and say, we can pay ourselves, private equity owners, uh, $500 million, $600 million, billion dollar, name your number, um, um, dividend, even though we've only owned this company for six months, a year, um, just by layering more debt onto it because often because interest rates are falling. And so we can take up more debt and pay, our, pay ourselves. From the perspective of the private equity firms, it's it's been great because they're able to get their money out of companies much more quickly than, 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 than they did in the past. And from the perspective of their investors, they're actually, they're doing the right thing. They're getting their investors returns. From the perspective of companies, it's meant that companies are really heavily indebted and the money isn't going to help them improve their businesses. It's not going to pay their workers. It's not going to help them invest in some new product that may change the world. It's going to pay the private equity owners a, a, a return. And I, I just, I think that's an abdication of the idea of private equity because the whole private equity was predicated on the idea that you, you're bringing this expertise to the company that's going to make it better, that's going to improve its operations. And most people who have studied this say, no, 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 that's that's become bunk. The only reason private equity firms are able to generate any kind of returns is because of debt and because of cheap debt. And so if the era of cheap debt is coming to an end, what does that mean for private equity going forward? Yeah, I wonder to some degree is, is the golden age of private equity in the 80s and the 90s is the reason that it was so golden because there were just undervalued companies that you could get for three times EBITDA. And now you have to do all this engineering if you want to even keep pace because everything is, is so richly valued. Yeah, I think that's a great question and great point. I think there was, I don't know when the turning point was, but there was a point in time, sometime maybe in the 2000s, maybe 2010, where where the business model of private equity changed and it went from being it went from being acquire undervalued companies, figure out ways to improve their operations, give them a break from being publicly traded and from having to satisfy the demands of the market, let them work on their businesses privately, quietly, out of sight, and then take them public again. You know what? Great. I'm all for that. That that seems to me like a legitimate business. And it switched into a financial engineering game where a 25-year-old who does understand financial engineering arguably could add value, but add value for the for, for the private equity um, owners, not necessarily for the for the company itself. You can argue that a lot of the returns that private equity touts were from an age where the business model is very different than it is now. Bethany, your, your third book, which is about Fannie Mae, is called Shaky Ground. I also recommend folks check that out. How would you say the mortgage market changed after the great financial crisis? And to, to when, when people say, oh my God, mortgage rates are so low, you know, and 2020 and 2021, mortgage rates were so low. How much of that is because of the Fed, because they're buying all of this mortgage-backed securities? How much is because of Fannie Mae, which packages all the mortgage-backed securities? And by the way, when I say all the mortgage-backed securities, I really do mean all of them, Fannie Mae and then Ginnie Mae, whereas before 2008, you had all these private lenders, private packages, private, private label uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities, private label credit uh, CDOs. And now that that is game over, right? Uh, now it's just Fannie Mae. So you have all like the vast majority of the mortgages in the U.S. are created by this entity. That- I just think it's fascinating that so much of the U.S. mortgage market is controlled by these companies that 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 most people don't understand and don't know exist. Uh, Lord Mervyn King, the former head of the bank, had. had Governor of the Bank of England said to me at one point, you in America do things so strangely. Most countries, we have socialized health care and a privatized mortgage market. You have a socialized mortgage market and privatized health care. 
you know, big picture. Yes, that's, 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 that's true. Anyway, so in the wake, during the financial crisis, the U.S. government stepped in and took over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which had been publicly traded companies that securitized, uh, 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 that, that really made the mortgage market in the U.S., function. And they still do, except now they're government wards. And the complaint about the companies, and in some ways it was legitimate, was that they were these companies with this sort of backing of the U.S. government that nonetheless had shareholders, private shareholders, who made money off their operations. And how could you have a company, the complaint was, that served two masters, that had both this government-guaranteed mission and a subsidy from the U.S. government, but that also had private shareholders. And I think that's our entire market. I mean, it was definitely banks after the global financial crisis, we understand. Now we look back on the pandemic and we understand, wait, it's also the hospital system. That has to be subsidized by the U.S. government too, as if we didn't know that already, given that 50% of the hospital sector's revenues come from the government. Um, and now we look and, oh, it's semiconductors too. Wait, the U.S. government. So that this, this whole idea that Fannie and Freddie were the only institutions that got any money from the U.S. government it is just, it's it's. So absurd as to be as to be laughable. Anyway, but since the government has owned these companies, they no longer have private private. They do have private shareholders, but it's 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 that's a stock that's traded on the pink sheets. I actually think the old market, the the old version, was healthier, where the companies did serve two masters and they had a bottom line which kept their lending in check and not as subject to political pressures as it might otherwise have been. And then they had this mission to help make housing more affordable. And I actually think that was a healthy juxtaposition or a healthy balance rather than an unhealthy one. There's this whole sector of the mortgage market now that is every that is part of the shadow banking system that are these mortgage REITs and that are somewhat somewhat unstable, or at least they were certainly unstable during the during the pandemic. So when you when you think about it, the idea that we are taking this incredibly pivotal sector of the, 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 the economy called housing and not being really, really thoughtful about how it's structured and financed is just it's sort of insane. Um, um, but then going to your your underlying question, which was why have mortgage rates been so low? I don't think it's been because of Fannie and Freddie. It's been because of the Fed and not only the Fed holding interest rates very, very low in the wake of the pandemic, but continuing to buy um, billions of dollars of, of mortgage-backed securities. And that, I think it's caused a huge distortion in the housing market that we are only beginning to see the effects of the unwind. Yeah. And, and uh, so I think now the Federal Reserve is via quantitative tightening. Not only has it stopped buying mortgage-backed securities, but it is shrinking its balance sheet of mortgage-backed securities, not by selling so far, but by just allowing them to expire and not buying them back. So we're recording this on Monday, August 29th. In a few days, I think in September, you know, when September starts, that's they're supposed to be uh, letting $35 billion, it's going to double, uh, of mortgage-backed securities off their balance sheet. But will they, ha will they be able to uh, have $35 billion per month mature? That's a question. It's probably going to be something more like $25 billion, uh, in which case, to, in order to meet their goal or their cap of $35 billion, uh, they will, might have to sell mortgage-backed securities. Uh, do you think the Federal Reserve will sell mortgage-backed securities? And to what degree do you think that might cause turmoil in the market? 
housing is the backbone of the American economy and it's the store of wealth for most Americans. And if you crater the housing market, you have a huge economic problem. So how the Fed treads this line with trying to manage and tamp down inflation while at the same time not destroying Americans' greatest source of, of wealth and financial stability. It's going to be a really interesting question going forward. And I think it's under, under discussed at the moment because most people are looking at the effect of the Fed's interest rate hikes on asset prices like stocks, um, but not looking at it not looking at the housing market and not thinking about what weakness in the housing market would really do to the American economy. Because yes, we did have this brief collapse in home prices and in mortgage lending during the global financial crisis. But thanks to the Fed's policies, that came roaring back. So we haven't really had a period where Americans, the value of Americans' homes on a nationwide basis has gone down for long period of time in a substantial way. And what that does to both the economic stability and the social stability of, of the country, um, a country that's already on edge, where a lot of people are, are worried about how they're going to fund retirement, how they're going to survive. I don't know. I think that's going to be a really interesting question. Now, the Fed might get lucky and maybe inflation is going to be controlled much more quickly than 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 it looks. I don't even know if I can say it looks like it might be. I don't think. But I loved when Powell said, I think it was this spring, no one really, he said something along the lines of no one really understands inflation. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated by these things like inflation that you say, and we all know what the word means, but then it turns out that it's actually what, what creates it and what stops it. It's actually really, really complicated and no human being really, really can can possibly control it. So I'm not predicting the, the, the future of inflation and it may, the Fed may get lucky and it may all work out and this may be an academic question. But if it's not an academic question and the Fed has to start selling this portfolio, how much weakness in the housing market can this country tolerate? Yes. Well, we've, we've seen how much strength the U.S. housing market can tolerate. I mean, 20% year over year gains, right. uh, something like that over the past two years. And do, to, to what degree do you think that inflation is due to this wealth effect, which the Federal Reserve puts a lot of uh, uh, faith stock in? In other words, uh, I have stocks, I have bonds, I have a house. If those financial assets go up in value, I'm going to feel wealthier, so I'm going to spend more money. Uh, you know, to what to what degree do you think the reason that inflation is so high is because housing prices have gone up? And actually, if we want to moderate inflation, stocks have to go down. We have to have the reverse wealth effect. Housing prices have to go down. I think some some portion of it is, as Powell infamously said, transitory because some portion of it is snarled supply chains. But whether let me back up, whether those whether those supply chain snarls really are transitory, um, given China's continued policy of zero COVID, or whether these shortages can continue, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how transitory the supply chain snarls are. This other component of asset price inflation, for sure, it's got to be some of it, right? How could how could it not be? I mean, when um, when Ben Bernanke launched QE in the wake of the global financial crisis, he explicitly cited this wealth effect as as a reason to do it and as a reason to drive um, stock prices and home prices and home prices higher. Um, so it's very definitely real. But I also think it has got to have caused labor shortages in that there are people who who would be who would have been working and would have been holding down jobs, but had made enough either from selling their house or from crypto or from some kind of bubble in asset prices. They trading SPACs. 
right? Or we're able to say, I'm not working now. And so I think for sure it has contributed to the rising cost of labor. One thing where we do have more certainty about what is causing inflation is energy prices. So that's natural gas, electricity, oil, coal, really everything. Your book, Saudi America, which chronicled the uh, shale revolution uh, over the past 20 years, and really you had this epic bust as commodity prices fell from 2014, 2015, 2016, huge bankruptcies. If people look at, like, let's say, the, the Bloomberg High Yield Index, like the reason it collapsed in 2016, it looked like we had a great worldwide depression. We didn't. It's just that much of that index was composed of high yield in debt that was lent to energy companies that perhaps you can relate to the Fed as you do in your book, which uh, I recommend people people check out. How have you, you know, having written that book and really understanding the natural gas market, you know, both in your book on about Enron, but well, in this book, it's you know exclusively about the shale revolution. How have you, what's your take on the momentous rise in energy prices that so quickly followed the collapse in oil prices so much so that you know oil went negative for a day uh, and now it you know it's i think brent is back over a hundred dollars um and the russia ukraine so yeah how, how have you made sense of the energy markets i don't <laughs> uh, but, I, but i think you're getting at something really interesting which is that uh, over over the course of the last couple of years everything that somebody has said in one minute has very quickly been wrong in the next minute right whether it was energy is dead oil is dead oil is trading oil futures are negative this is the end of the age of oil to oh my god <laughs> what's happening to oil prices to inflation is dead we're never going to see inflation again oh my oh my god here's here's inflation uh every thing that people have said in the last couple of years within a couple of months has been proven to be wrong. The world is just, it seems to be, the world has always changed at a rapid rate, but it seems over the last couple of years, the speed of that change has accelerated such that what things look like one month is just radically different in such a short period of time. Something that people don't always do is to separate out natural gas and oil. And they are really, really different, obviously. <laughs> one is a gas, one is one is not. But they're, but they're also, the economics of both are really, really different. Oil is a global market, natural gas is not. Natural gas fracking, even skeptics of fracking have said, you know what, this probably does make sense. The U.S. has a plethora of low-priced natural gas. I'm sorry, Bethany, can you, can you explain quickly why oil is a global market, it's fungible, it can go anywhere, and natural gas isn't? Why? Yes, you just said it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so, so natural gas is People are trying to make it more of a global market via these LNG plants that take natural gas and turn it into a liquid and then ship it overseas and regasify it. And that's how we're trying to get natural gas to Europe for, for, for the winter. And so maybe you can argue that it's in the process of becoming a more global market, but because natural gas is so difficult to transport and these LNG plants are so expensive, it has not been a global market um, um, to date. Uh, the U.S. also has a huge supply of abundant, really cheap natural gas. And the fracking revolution, as it came to as, as it applied to natural gas, the, the the main issue with fracking has always been that the capital required to to frack a well is enormous. And the wells, the well productivity declines really rapidly. In the case of oil, the well productivity declines so rapidly that you get very quickly on this capital expenditure treadmill where you have to keep reinvesting in order to keep the oil flowing. And that's why oil fracking historically has not made money on a cash flow basis. Natural gas 
the, the, the surplus of natural gas available after the fracking revolution cratered the price and made it very difficult for nat natural gas companies to, to make money. But it doesn't take a much higher price for natural gas fracking to be economically viable. So they, they, they really are, they're, 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 they're two different things. And given the humanitarian crisis that's coming in Europe, even though this isn't an economic argument, but the humanitarian crisis with the lack of natural gas coming from Russia, I mean, it's a fraught issue given the environmental damage inflicted by fracking, but if we can get natural gas to, to Europe, part of the crux of the energy market, which is that, or the, the moral crux of the energy market, which is that access to energy undoubtedly makes the world a better, a better place, even while producing that energy can be economically destructive, or I'm sorry, environmentally destructive. Oil is a different story. Everybody's making a big deal out of how much money the fracking companies are, are making now. I think as inflation continues and the cost of all the equipment involved in fracking a well keeps skyrocketing, whether oil fracking companies are still making money in, in a year, regardless of the price of oil, is, is I think an open question. It doesn't change some of the fundamental dynamics at work in oil for fracking, in fracking oil, which is that the U.S. supply of oil that can be fracked is fairly high priced um, relative to, to, to world oil. There's not that much of it. And all these promised technological breakthroughs that were going to enable us to get oil out of the ground, at, more oil out of the ground at cheaper prices thus far have, have not worked that well. Uh, wells drilled closer together, which was supposed to decrease the amount of capital required, just meant that one well cannibalized from another well. So I'm waiting to see. Technology is amazing. I'm waiting yeah. to see if technology can solve some of the fundamental problems of oil fracking before I say, ah, it is this, this, this incredibly profitable business. But I, I guess my, my overall point is just that natural gas is different. It, it, and so you can't, when you talk about energy markets, you really have to separate the two. Yes. And for investors out there, they should be, they should know if they invest in an oil company, whether if it's an oil company or if it's a natural gas company, because a lot of them do both. But you know, the last yeah. thing you want is you're bullish on uh, natural gas, and then you buy a company that act, they actually make oil, and then so you know, know what you own. That's that's an important thing. Uh, but uh, also, so you know, a lot of folks in the oil space who are pretty bullish on, let's say, the price of oil and natural gas, they say, oh, because of ESG, uh, companies aren't getting as much capital, as well as because of uh, you know, companies. Bethany, they, they learned, okay, they, they read your book. The CEOs of the companies, they read your book. They know they, they can't focus on production. They have to focus on profitability, returning capital to shareholders, buybacks and dividends, shareholder discipline. Uh, but then, so I, I sort of put a lot of stock in that argument. Then reading your book, I'm like, I'm like ooh, I, I don't know. I think if, if oil's at $120, like I think a lot of these oil fracking companies are going to increase production uh, drastically. So what what do you think about that? Like, is is the... Is it true that they've learned their lesson? I, I mean, we, we all learn our lessons until there's a lot of money to be made. ESG was assigned as the cause for why there was less investment in oil exploration in recent years. I think a lot of it had to do with investor skepticism about the returns from, from fracking. Uh, I'm sure some of it has been ESG as well, but there was this very broad-based investor skepticism about, about the returns from fracking. And this real insistence on the part of investors, we want to see, we want to see positive returns. We don't just want you paying your executives based on the amount of production. Um, how that plays out over the next couple of years, I, that, that's, it's, 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 it's anybody's guess. Uh, but in a market, once again, that might be um, starved for growth, 
um, production growth might become a metric again. So, uh, what's your what's your hunch on on whether or will energy prices relent because supp- supply will come online? I mean, the history of predicting the, the the future of oil prices is littered with with failure, and really, when you look back, even from the 1970s, about really really smart people predicting where energy prices was we're going. The one thing they all have in common is that they were wrong time and time again. And I'm not as smart as they are. So I would, I would, I would never make a prediction about, about oil prices. I guess I'd be more comfortable. There was, I I can't believe I'm blanking on this, but at the end of my book on fracking, there was a, uh, a oil and gas research firm that predicted three future scenarios for for oil, and one of them was that oil prices that the environmental that that wind and solar kicked in more quickly than people expected, and oil went into free fall, and it was the end end of the age of oil. The other was an argument about scarcity that wind and solar and uh, renewables were a long way off, and so oil prices were much higher for a longer period of time than anybody thought. And third was this these violent upheavals where the sentiment would just change so dramatically that it would swing from being, we've got an oil shortage to saying the end of oil is here and prices would just dramatically oscillate up and down for this, for a bunch of the next decades. And I think that's actually the right answer. I think that's what's, that's what's probably going to happen is that we're headed for this period where just as soon as we start to say oil prices are higher, they, they plummet due to something. And I think, so I think we're headed for a period of violent upheavals in the, in the price of oil. I'd be more comfortable saying, I think, given all the facilities that are coming online to export natural gas, I don't know if we're going back to the super low prices for natural gas. And if, if I had to make a bet, I would say natural gas prices are going to be higher for a long, long, long time to come because it is becoming more of a global market. And as these LNG facilities get built and get natural gas starts to be exported, it just it does provide a floor under the price that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Not a floor, but a, but it provides more de- more demand. A floor is the wrong way of putting it, right? I should know. Well, I know, given your investigative journalism background and your extremely high standard for, uh, you know, questioning, digging into claims, I knew. Yeah, floor. Uh, <laughs> no one, no one says you can't. You can't say no floor. floor. You can't say because floor. things can go below the floor. <laughs> Yeah, but I but even I, zero but, isn't a floor. No, you're right. Well, now we know that for energy prices. But I, I do I do have a hard time seeing that once the market for natural gas starts to become more global in nature, I have a hard time seeing that prices could be as low as they've been in the in in the past decade. But that that could that that could be wrong. Right. So you're you're saying. American natural gas prices, American well. right? Because right now, you know, European natural gas is I don't know four or five, six times higher than natural gas. Yeah. If that was oil, easy. I'm just shipping, you ship right. ship oil. You you make the difference, but it's extremely complicated. So as the barriers uh, 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 ease and it's easier to transit, yeah, you think that the the uh, you, the, the spread will narrow, and yeah. that means U.S. natural gas. Okay, that that, that makes I, sense. I do. I do. I don't know if that's right. Thank you for translating. But yes, that's what I, that's what, if I, if I had to place a bet anywhere, I would not place a bet on oil prices because I really do think we're in for this period of just enormous volatility where what the world looks like one day is going to look very different in, in six months. I would bet on some level of higher natural U.S. natural gas prices going forward. And to what degree, Bethany, have you looked into green energy, alternative energy, that's wind, that's solar, which are purely green. Then there's nuclear, which is just not really emit carbon, but it, it creates nuclear waste and nuclear 
energy, famously poo-pooed by the German Green Party, which now is relying on coal, the dirtiest uh, pollutant in, in, in the world. So I don't know. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't dug into that recently enough to have a real sense of, of how economically viable they are. I would recommend a piece that uh, the New York Times writer David, Was- David Wallace-Wells did recently in the Times, where he pointed out that we talk about subsidizing renewable energy as this dirty word, subsidies, and yet investors have offered fracking this enormous subsidy over the past decade that has enabled the existence of fracking. So why is subsidy such a bad word when it comes to renewable energy, and yet we seem to apply a different standard uh, for, for, for fracking? And he points out that there are but there's a big obvious flaw with this argument, which is that in one case, we're talking about government subsidies, and in another case, it's been a subsidy provided by the private market for, for the most part, right? But it, but it is interesting about why we're willing to tolerate money, why we're willing to tolerate big losses in one field and not willing to tolerate big losses in, 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 in another. And so I think that's an interesting question. I think the other interesting question, and I'm positing questions because I don't know, know the answers to them, but if I were not finishing this book, is just how dramatically the sentiment around nuclear is changing. You've seen it change in Germany. You're seeing it change everywhere. And there was at one point where I think nuclear was a dirtier word than coal um, on the part of green energy types. And I don't think that's true anymore. And so there's nothing like a little bit of need to start changing people's minds about what's what's viable and sensible and, and what isn't. And so I think that would be a really interesting thing to dig into as to yeah. how permanent the, the change in sentiment toward nuclear may be. So there's nothing like a little bit of pragmatism added to the debate uh, to, yeah. to start changing people's minds. Definitely. Bethany, what your new book, uh, which you're currently working on, you're writing it with Joe Nocero, uh, what Joe Nocero, what, what is it about? So it's really an attempt to look at um, how, what areas were already stressed by how we were practicing modern capitalism even before the pandemic hit and how the pandemic uh, highlighted and exacerbated some of those strains on the system. So everything from our reliance on Federal Reserve policy to booster the, boost the economy to the fragility in supply chains to um, the functioning of our sort of of our healthcare system, um, um, which is this weird mix of for-profit and not-for-profit and gover- government money. So it's and then and then and then some of the success stories of vaccine of, of capitalism, which arguably are the vaccines. And so, uh, although that's really a success story of a private partner private-public partnerships. So it's it's really an attempt to look at the functioning of modern capitalism as through the lens of the pandemic. Mm. In what degree did you observe, let's say, call it capitalism, which is it's a word, it's, it can mean nothing, it can mean everything, but did that change? Because, you know, in March 2020, you, you had things, you had people, you had uh, governments and companies do things they would never would have imagined doing. You had all sorts of loans being created that really was just money printing because they never had to be paid back. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet exploded, central banks, governments and commercial banks all just, you know, essentially... They, they went to do a room together. They printed a lot of money. And, and as a result of that, companies went public that have they would tell investors. But this is not legal fraud. I mean, it's, they were open about it. They said, we're not going to make any a penny in revenue until 2025. Uh, 
and that company, you know, was at a time you know, valued at ten billion dollars, probably more. Um, how do you say the capital markets and capitalism changed uh, during COVID and after March twenty twenty? Well, Cindy, and I alluded to it earlier, but one of the big one of the big ways in which I've reevaluated things, and I had started it with the process of Fannie and Freddie, because Fannie and Freddie were always excoriated for their reliance on government subsidies. And I remember saying in the wake of the financial crisis, but wait, why are Fannie and Freddie any different than the big banks? Because the big banks need government handouts too, as it, as it turns out. When a crisis hits, they the government has to backstop them every bit as much as it had to backstop Fannie, Fannie and Freddie. And then I thought through this, through the process of the pandemic of, of watching this, well, so many sectors in our economy uh, rely on, on, on the government, whether it's the hospital sector, as I mentioned earlier, the, the semiconductors sector. And so I think this whole idea, we have this idea in this country that we have free markets. And by free markets, we think of these you know, entrepreneurs out there fending for themselves in the wild west of the free market, such that whatever they earn, they are, of course, entitled to their every penny of that because they've created it for themselves. And the reality is that it's all a, it's all a, a system of rules and regulation and incentives created by created by the government. And that's not to detract from the power of private enterprise, but it is to say that this this conversation about free markets is more more fraught than I think I think many of us want many of us want to believe. Mm. So, and I think that that gets to your question about Federal Reserve policy. Well, it created the efforts to save the economy from COVID created all of these opportunities for people to get enormously wealthy. Is that because they were so brilliant and hardworking and had such visionary ideas that they were able to make fortunes? No, it's because of government policy. And again, that doesn't necessarily detract from the amount of work that some people put in put into some of these some of these endeavors. But a lot of it was a massive subsidy from taxpayers. Um, and 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 that 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 America arguably will be struggling with for, for for some time, and so these lines are just much more fraught than 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 we necessarily than we necessarily want to believe. Right, and, and even in your analogy, I think you're talking on a primary level of the government subsidizes people to buy a good, and that as a result, a company makes a profit by selling that good, and as a result, the person, the CEO. People who own that company, they make money. But I, you know, I, there's also the uh, derivative level where the company doesn't make any money at all. Uh, but that person who owns the co- company or is a major shareholder, the CEO, founder, whatever, they are a quote billionaire on paper because uh, the stock went up. Uh, and in that case, you could say no. The reason there is is nothing to do with the merit of the company. In a parallel world where there, you know, no QE, no PPP, uh, no stimulus. I don't think they'd be a billionaire. I don't think they would be a billionaire either. So it is this, so it is, I guess one of the things I'm trying to sort out in, in, in my own mind, because I think those of us, I think younger people may have a little more skepticism, but I definitely grew up in an era. My first job was at Goldman Sachs. I went to work at Fortune and I really saw stories like Enron as the exception to the rule, as the examples of when capitalism or when markets failed. But overall, yes, the glory of the market. Any entrepreneur who creates a business and then makes a fortune, they're entitled to all of those rewards and the market functions because that's the free market. Of course, the free market works. And I've just begun to question that underpinning more, more and more. 
are, both from the standpoint of how well it works for much of our moderate economy and also from the standpoint of how free is the market actually. In other words, it isn't this it isn't this jungle of meritocracy where the person with the best idea who works the hardest succeeds and makes the most money. <laughs> it can be that, but it can also be something very, very different than that. Yes. And the perversions of that free market are not only coming from the government, but they're also coming from investors. You sort of you look at if you and I were to start a taxi company, we probably would, you know, drive ourselves, we may hire a few people, and then if we made money, we would expand. But it's and maybe we get money from friends and family, do a capital raise, whatever. But the idea, you know, we wouldn't just get funded, we wouldn't be funded $60 billion. We wouldn't lose money get fund, fund, continue to lose money, fund, continue to get money, get more money from investors. I mean, if you look at companies like Uber and Lyft, uh, those companies lost money for year after year after year. And, you know, I think they actually don't make money. Um, uh, Uber made, they, they had a profitable, positive adjusted EBITDA, but they really are not profitable businesses. Um, and when, when I think about inflation, uh, to what degree do you think that dynamic is at play where companies were, had artificially low prices to subsidize that uh, were subsidized by investors so that they could grow. And now the investors are no longer willing to put up with losses. And is that because they just, uh, you know, of, of, of rising interest rates, inflation, who knows, but you know, as a result, Uber has to increase the, the price. And it, it's not, it, it's not, that you know, it, it, it always costs that much. It's just, they were charging, they were selling the car ride for less than what it cost. Yeah, it's another version of David Wells' well, David Wells' Wells's argument about energy. And actually, I think Derek Thompson, who's a writer I really admire, wrote a piece in The Atlantic about this, about how much of the millennial lifestyle was actually subsidized by investors' willingness to bear losses, which I thought was was a really interest. It's a really interesting distillation of what we're of what we're talking about. But yes, that for sure has to be a component of inflation as well. Is that the cost of all these? Again, I don't know how big. I don't know how to think about that. But 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 that the cost of so many things was held artificially low by investors' willingness to to bear losses. And again, that raises a question, why are investors willing to take losses in one area and not in another? Well, because they believe they're going to be mammoth profits one day, except in so many of these cases, that didn't exactly pan out to be true, whether it's WeWork or Uber, right? So the, the, the I guess what I would say is that the idea that the market's judgment is somehow profound or accurate, that they're willing to take losses in the short run because this thing is going to make lots of money in, in the long term. You look at what's happened with many of these businesses, and that's just that just hasn't been true. The judgment of the market has not been that great. So, and I, I think that's because it's the whole thing has gotten perverted by the ability of various players in the system to make money along the way. So, in the case of fracking, private equity firms could make a lot of money, even if the underlying enterprise was never profitable, by for a period of time backing entrepreneurs, assembling packages of land, flipping the company to a publicly traded company, making ten times their money. And they were out despite the fact that the public company continued to rack up huge losses on a cash flow basis. And I think that's been true along the way with a lot of these companies with the establishment of private markets and for all sorts of shares that people have been able to extract a lot of money along the way from things that ultimately end up being money losing enterprises. And I don't know if that marks a fundamental change in the history of capitalism or if thus it's ever been, but I think that has enabled money losing enterprises to go on longer than they otherwise would have because there are so many players in the system that are extracting things along the way. Yeah. Yes, and, and that parallel works 
perfectly if you have a wildcatter, a land, a land man, it used to be called, um, who they lease the land and they sell it. They, as you say, they make 10 times their money. The company who bought it, they don't make money. They, that they're subsidized by investors and the investors, they're left holding the bag. But the people who do the land, you know, actually in the industry, they make a lot of money. Similarly, a lot of stock promoters, companies, SPAC promoters, like the, the stock went from $30 to a dollar and 50 cents. But the person who was facilitating those transactions, who was going on TV saying what a great company it is, uh, you know, they got a fee, they got involved in the, the pipe round, uh, they got earnout shares and everything. So I, I think that the parallel works perfect. Um, Bethany, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on my podcast. Uh, folks, they can follow you um, uh, on Twitter at Bethany Mac 12. Um, when is, is, is your book? Uh, when, when's it coming out next year? September, September 2023. September 2023. Wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, and what's the name of your podcast? Oh, it's called Capital Isn't. So okay. you can tell that this theme of what's working in capitalism and what isn't has become one of my ongoing, um, one of my ongoing obsessions. And the podcast that I do with Luigi has definitely augmented that. Mm, mm, mm. Wonderful. Well, uh, I'll, I definitely will check that out. Bethany, thank you so much. Thank you. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.